Our scripture comes to us today from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, and in chapter 65. In chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And in chapter 65, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Heather. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you for coming out and being with us. I, I uh, was reminded this morning that uh, next year uh, we will be gathering on Christmas morning. Uh, so Sunday will be Christmas, and so I'm encouraged to see so many of you come out. I did want to say it has been such a... Um, such a pleasure to uh, have such uh, such good time together. I remember in uh, in 2007, we were preparing to plant this church, and we went to our mother church's Christmas Eve service, which I always just absolutely loved. And the room was full, and there was music, and there were decorations, and it was just so beautiful. And I remember turning to Ashley and saying, do you ever think uh, that it'll be like this? And to have 305, 310 people in this room worshiping together uh, Friday night. It was just marvelous to me to, to see what God has done. And so it's just been so great. And you make it such a joy uh, to pastor and uh, lead and uh, preach and teach and all those things. Uh, so thank you. I've really enjoyed Christmas with you. And so very excited to be here this morning as well. Um, and so thank you for coming out. Uh, I am I as, as probably unprepared and disheveled as you might feel or, or weary, I promise you, I feel just as unprepared. <laughs> And disheveled, and my grandmother reminded me my shirt's untucked, and just everything's everything's falling apart this morning. So, I you know, 
bear with me because this is not going to be the normal run-of-the-mill thing because uh, I, I do have four kids and we celebrated Christmas all day long yesterday. So, uh, And these are, you might have read those passages with Heather and thought, what in the world is that talking about? Lions and lambs and ox eating. What, what, I mean, so we got some work to do this morning, okay? We've been, um, we've been telling a story during the weeks of Advent and now that Christmas has come and gone, it is appropriate that we would deal with the climax of the story, which we celebrated yesterday. So we're going to, this morning, rely heavily on these passages in Isaiah 11 and 65, uh, but also on the Isaiah 61 passage that was our call to worship and the Revelation 21 passage, which was the assurance of pardon. And so I'm just going to kind of take some broad uh, ideas from all those different passages to talk to you about the climax of the story that we've been trying to tell during the Advent season. So we're going to look, and, what, and my goal this morning is just this. My goal is that that you would get, get a glimpse into the scope of the work that God has done and, and continues to do coming out of that baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, that it is a much bigger, more consuming, cosmic work of the Spirit that is happening uh, than we sometimes give credit for, and that if we see the scope, then what we're going to see is that as God's people, it gives us a new identity, and it gives us a new mission. And so I want us to see the scope of what God's doing in his work of salvation and how it gives us both a new identity and a new mission. If we're going to do it, and I'm really uncomfortable with this, but we're going to do it in a, in, a, in a little different way this morning. Now, I want to do it by looking at the audience that was at the birth of Christ and thinking about the different people or the different parties that were there when Christ was born and how each of those are theologically significant and speak to kind of the things we want to talk about this morning. So we're going to look, and you'll see your three... Uh, points in your outline. We're going to look and see how the animals, the shepherds, and the wise men uh, speak theologically to what is happening in the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, which we celebrate on Christmas, okay? So taking those three, all right? Let's begin with the animals, and I know you're, you're thinking, what? I mean, this is not good. Where is this going to go? And I reserve the right to have this tape erased forever uh, <laughs> for my safety and sanity, but I, I do think that there is a significance in the presence of the animals at the birth of Christ. And of course, the scripture doesn't explicitly tell us the animals were there. So I'm, I'm pushing maybe a little bit, but Luke does say that they laid the newborn Jesus in a manger, which was an animal feeding trough. So you would, it would seem by implicit implication that animals were there. And every children's Bible or storybook I've ever read has sheep and you know, cows and all these kinds of things. So use your imagination with me for a minute, okay? And I know that's hard for Presbyterians, but let's try. And we're going to try to do this, okay? Now, when Isaiah summarizes God's salvation, he puts it this way. Isaiah sixty-five seventeen. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now, in Revelation 21, we're told, I mean, so again, we're going to skip around. But in Revelation 21, we're told that a new heaven, John sees... A new heaven and a new earth. He sees a new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven to the earth. And here's what this means. Okay, here's, here's what we've got to, to see from both of these. So from Isaiah looking forward to Revelation at the very end of our scriptures. It means that what we're hoping for is not that when we die, we'll get to leave the earth behind and float up into heaven and zoom around, you know, kick back on clouds strumming harps for eternity. Right? That the goal of all that God is doing in Jesus to rescue us and the entire creation from the guilt and curse of sin is not that one day 
we will get to leave earth and go to heaven. The goal in all that God is doing in Jesus is that heaven would come down to earth. Isaiah promises a new heaven and a new earth. Heaven will be a renewed earth. Look at the way Isaiah describes the renewal. He says, we'll build houses and plant vineyards and work the soil. He talks about the animals laying down their enmity and natural rivalry with one another. That The lion and the lamb will lay down together. Isaiah Isaiah is describing a renewed earth. Do you see that? It's an earth without the curse of sin. And we've been talking about how salvation extends even to the natural world. And so salvation's not, man, and this is, we've got to be really careful, but to say this, that salvation is not just about God saving our souls. Of course it's about that. But the scripture is very clear. We're going to have bodies there. And we're going to work there. And we're going to live in community there. That all of the things that we love about the world that we live in now are going to be there as well. But in technicolor, that all of human community and the natural order of things is going to be remained. And that's the promise of the gospel. And that's why it's theologically significant for there to be animals present at Jesus' birth. Uh, in Mark's gospel, and you can look this up later, Mark 16, 15, Jesus' great commission, his final instructions to his disciples are just this. He says, go into all of the world and proclaim the gospel. Now, in Matthew, it's to the nations. In Mark, it's proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Preach to the trees. Preach to the animals. Jesus is saying, preach the gospel to the whole creation. And that word specific, it means the created order of things. In other words, preach the gospel to rocks and fields and the seas and the animals. Now, what? What? I mean, really? And there's a place in the Gospels where Jesus' disciples are making a f- big fuss uh, about him as he's journeying into Jerusalem. And the religious leaders, you can probably remember this story, uh, are very, uh, they're really upset about it. And they tell, them to tell, tell him to tell them to hush and to be quiet and to stop singing his praises and to just, just kind of let this thing go without all the fuss. And he looks at them and he says, I mean, it's one of my favorite, I just love this. This is so amazing. In Luke 19, he looks at them and he says, if they don't sing, the rocks will cry out. I mean, in other words, the rocks were bursting. The rocks could barely contain their voices. The Psalms, when they talk about God's coming to his people and salvation, they they say, Psalm 98, the seas roar and the, and the, um, the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing for joy. I mean, what is going on in all these verses? I mean, what's all this about? Rivers have hands and hills have voices. I mean, animal, do animals talk? I mean, is C.S. Lewis right? I mean, what, what is happening in all of this? And it's just this, that the gospel, the coming of the king into the earth, Christmas is good news for men. He's coming to rescue us, but it's good news for the creation and even for sheep and cows and donkeys and hills and rivers and trees. And that's why it was appropriate for those animals to be there in attendance at the birth of the king. So now that you think I've completely lost my mind, let me do a little careful exegesis to show you how deliberate Isaiah is being. Look at Isaiah 65, 23. And in Isaiah 65, 23, he makes this statement, they shall not labor in vain. Now that is a very intentional statement. It's actually a restatement of, of the curse in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, in response to man and women in sin, God says that the whole creation has come under a curse. That the ground would now produce thorns and thistles. 
and that it would be through great pain and lots of sweat and tears that they would harvest food to eat. Paul says it this way in Romans 8. He says that the creation has been subjected to futility. It's been subjected to meaninglessness and that it is in bondage to corruption. That it, it, I, again, I love it, that Paul says that the creation groans. It groans to be set free from its decay. And Paul says, so, so the creation groans. It literally, ugh, you know, to be set free from what has come to it because of sin. And that's why the rocks threaten to sing when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Because he's undone what's been done in the fall. That's why Isaiah is trying to show us that Jesus has come to lift the curse. That's what that little phrase means. He was crowned, but not with a crown of jewels and gold. He was crowned with a crown of thorns, so that thorns would no longer grow in the soil. And that's what all this cosmic language is about in Isaiah 11 and 65. He says there'll be no more death. He says that in Revelation chapter 21, more explicitly, that sin brought death into the world. But Isaiah hints at the reversal of even death. That no longer, look at this, no longer will parents have to bury infants who live just a few days. Amen? I mean, can you imagine a greater sadness? He says to be 100 years old will be like being a young man. I don't know if you know anybody who's 100. Now, this may be true of Granny Hart, Tammy, but probably not anybody else in the world world where, you know, a 100-year-old person would feel like a young person. But God says there's a day coming when the curse will be so lifted, death will be so done away with that to be a hundred will feel like being a young man. I mean, that's what this language is grasping at, what Revelation makes explicit in Revelation 21, verses 4 and 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither will be there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, because all things will be made new. The curse will be reversed. There'll be shalom. Everything will be exactly the way it's supposed to be. There'll be righteousness and justice in the earth. But not only that, but there's hints that there being a redeemed human community here too. Human community will be restored. You remember what happened to Adam and Eve after their sin? There was, let's say, marital unrest. Right? Pointing fingers. Interpersonal conflict. Strife. Finger pointing. Blame shifting. All these kinds of things. And quickly, just a few chapters later in Genesis, leading to envy and hatred and even murder. And so the result of the fall, we see all over the scripture, is that human community has been fractured. But Isaiah says that in the new heavens and the new earth, the wolf and the lamb will graze together. Do you see that? They will dwell together. Now, why is that significant? I mean, what? You tell me. What? That's the wind, by the way. What happens? What happens usually when a wolf and a lamb get together? The wolf eats the lamb. Isaiah says, no, they're going to lie down together. And that would be like a, a, a Gator football coach and a, and a Seminole football coach going to the beach together. Oh, wait a minute. That's happening. Maybe the new heavens and the new earth are coming. I don't know. Right? But you can see this. You can see this. I mean, this is what, this is, what is happening. This is, what, this is what Isaiah says is unfolding. Isaiah says... The nursing child, verse 8 of, of Isaiah 11, shall play over the hole of the cobra. What? Let your kids go out in the yard and play with snakes. It's going to be fine. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. So what, what, what again, Isaiah is hinting at here is the, is the renewal of human community where all hostility and anger and strife, 
all relational conflict will be put down. The lion and the lamb will lay down together. And I've said, if you, if you want to know, I mean, what does that mean? Every time someone in this church has cause to be angry because of an offense of another person, and instead they show that person forgiveness and they're reconciled, the lion and the lamb lay down together. So there's relational wholeness. John sees a new Jerusalem. You see that? Descending to the earth, a new city, a new redeemed human community coming down from heaven to earth. This also means... Even more here, that we will be psychologically and emotionally whole. Remember, again, the result of sin, that the man and the woman's eyes were open and they saw that they were naked and they felt shame, we're told. They, in other words, they knew that they were unacceptable and unlovely, but the promise of Christmas is that if you put your faith in Jesus, no matter how dark your emotional, psychological reality might be, no matter how deep your depression, no matter how profound your fear or your anxiety, no matter how defining your pain or regret or sorrow, he can remake you. Isaiah 61, he can give you a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. He can take your sadness and turn it to joy. He can make you, no matter who you are, he can make you as strong as, and steady as an oak tree. He can turn you into an oak of righteousness, Isaiah says. And then finally, all this traces itself back to the loss of intimacy with God. That we are broken and fractured emotionally and psychologically and relationally because we've unplugged ourselves from the source of life and love. Our sin... The Bible is very clear to say has separated us from the love and life of God. But what Isaiah promises is that God is going to come. And above all things, he's going to restore the intimacy that Adam and Eve enjoyed with him at the very beginning. Isaiah 65 says, before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. This is the culmination of everything Isaiah has to say. That what really is going to get fixed, Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4, is that God says, I will dwell with them again. I mean, that's, that's the real promise. If you want to know the real sadness of sin, the real sadness of sin is that we've lost communion with God, that we were created to walk and talk with God and to look at him face to face. And what Isaiah says, and what Revelation 21 promises, is that there's coming a day, and it's begun with this baby in Bethlehem, where God will once again walk and talk with us, and we will dwell with him, and we will behold him, and he will take us as his people, and he will be our God. He will be so attentive to us that before we cry out to him, he'll hear and he'll answer. Now, of course, of course, all of this that we're looking forward to, this is this is what we're looking forward to. Uh, In Jesus, when he comes again, we believe that this baby born in Bethlehem, which we celebrated yesterday, is the king of all the earth and that he died. And upon his death, he returned to his father in heaven. But and he is there at the right hand of the father, but he is coming again into the world. And it is when he comes to judge sin and do away with unrighteousness that he will make all things new and wipe away every tear from our eyes. But, but, as we've said before, and what the Bible very clearly teaches is that eternal life, that the life of heaven, that these verses are describing, and everything that I've tried to show you is all that God is doing in Jesus to save us. All of this eternal life, or life of heaven, what's happened is this is not something that's out there in the future that hopefully one day, if we're good enough, God will look at us and say, you know, you can come in and we'll experience it. No, what the Bible teaches is that it is pushed back, it's being pushed forward into the presence. It's being pushed back into our present circumstances and we can enter into it and experience it now. That Jesus says, this is eternal life. Do you know me? You believe in me. And so the great work of restoration has begun And it is continuing and it is advancing. And no matter how small or seemingly insignificant those advances might be, it is coming and we can enter into it and we can experience it now. And so 
to use C.S. Lewis's famous line, through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, literally the stone table is cracked and death has begun to work back on us. Or as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, everything sad is coming untrue. I mean, this is what's happening, and this is what we celebrate at Christmas. Nothing less than that. Nothing less than that. That's the scope of what God is doing in making all things new. But there's a second thing I want you to see, and there's a second uh, thing the audience at the birth of Christ teaches us. And that is that uh, there's, this creates a new identity. This cre- what happens is, is this work of God creates a new community of people. And there's an upside-downness to that people because Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of grace. And so the church should be a countercultural, counterintuitive community. The church literally should be the new redeemed humanity in the present while we wait for our new home, the new Jerusalem that will come down from heaven. And so there's a, there's a new identity that comes. Now notice, notice when you think of who was at the manger uh, scene, it was not the religious ascetics. It was not the Essenes who withdrew from life and society in order to, quote-unquote, perfect themselves and make themselves ready for the coming of Messiah. It was not the Pharisees who believed that Messiah would come when Israel proved themselves worthy through their devotion to the law. It was not those people. But it was not the political activists either. It was not the zealots who were ready to give their lives for the kingdom of God. When God announces the arrival of Messiah, he chooses to do so to who? Shepherds. And don't you, we, we, we listen to the Jesus story Bible's uh, presentation of the, of the Christmas story, and I love that he says, the, the, they say, shepherds were smelly. Because for a kid, what, I mean, what is, what, is more, what is more disgusting than smelliness? And that's really, what, that's really what this is getting at. That the gospel is good news, not only for cows and sheep. It's good news for shepherds, too, because shepherds were the lowest of the low of society. They were grouped in there with the sinners and the tax collectors. Uh, they had no social standing whatsoever. They were outcasts. They were morally questionable. Uh, they, but they got an invitation to come and see the Christ child while others did not. And I want to say to you, that is not coincidence. That's sovereignty. It's not coincidence that they were there. It's sovereignty. God is making a statement in having them there about the revolutionary nature of the kingdom that he is bringing. He chooses shepherds to be his witness. And this is an indication of the shift that's going to take place, that Jesus' kingdom is going to be very different. Because shepherds, if shepherds get invited but not religious people, then we have to conclude that something strange and unbelievable is about to happen. In other words, the way to get into a relationship with God is changing. It's not through moral achievement. It's not through social standing. It's not through religious commitment. It can't be because everybody knew that the shepherds didn't have any of those things. They didn't have any of it. So the shepherd's presence at the birth of Christ signals that the gospel is a gospel of grace, that salvation, instead of coming to the most deserving, comes to the least deserving, to the outcast, to the forgotten, to the looked down upon, to the low. The shepherds, the shepherds had no business being there except that God chose to send his angelic choir to their hillside. And by doing so, he signaled his intention to give himself to the poor and the broken and the needy and the left out. You see, Jesus is a king. And if you look there in Isaiah 11, verse 4, in the words of Isaiah, this king with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now, he will work righteousness. Remember, he's going to... He's going to come and he's going to correct all the, the, what the, what's wrong with our political and social and cultural dynamics that keep, you know, people poor in poverty and, and, 
and allow all this oppression and injustice to happen in the social order of things. He's going to work righteousness, and he will do so, we're told, by actively intervening for the sake of the poor and the meek. That's what that verse in Isaiah means. And we know from other places in the scriptures that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit and those who mourn and those who are meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? Not the powerful and those of noble birthright and those with means and the self-confident and the self-reliant. And if you look at Isaiah 61, uh, sometime later you'll see in those four verses that, that, that that's exactly who Isaiah preaches the gospel to. He says to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to the prisoners, to those who mourn. In other words, it's almost a word-for-word precursor to the Beatitudes in Matthew 6. And I just want to say it to you this way, and I, I don't know why I've never, I've never thought of it this way, but, but this, was just, this really came home to me this morning as uh, the firstborn son of two firstborn people. Jesus is not the savior of overachievers. He's the savior of sinners. He didn't come to rally around himself a band of committed followers who would conquer the Romans. He came to die for sin. Our sin. Because it's the only way he could have us. It's the only way he could save us. And so there's a, there's a place in John's gospel where Jesus is doing, I mean, the most unthinkable thing. Here is the king of the universe, the, the eternal uh, uncreated God of heaven and earth who with the power of his wor- word spoke galaxies into existence who has come as a tiny little baby grown up in a poor family lived his life as a carpenter and yet revealed to be the true Messiah of Israel, the one who can raise the dead to life and can speak to, to tongues and have them opened and can, who can touch eyes that don't see and make them see and yet in the very last hours that he has with his disciples he gathers them in a room And they share a meal together, and then he does the unthinkable. He takes a towel and a basin, and he begins to go around, and the king of glory gets on his knees before his ungrateful, unworthy uh, disciples, one of whom is about to betray him, and he begins to wash their feet. And Peter, (laughs) you got to love Peter. Peter, Peter kind of understands the implications, and there's a point in the whole ceremony where Peter says, no, 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 you're not going to do this. And Jesus has to look at me and say, Peter, if I don't wash you, then you have no place with me. You see, the issue there, the issue there is Peter's pride. I mean, the issue that Peter's having to wrangle through is Peter, Peter wants to work for Jesus. He doesn't want Jesus to work for him. Peter wants to accomplish the mission through his own power and his own resources. Peter wants Jesus to be proud that Peter's on his team. I mean, Peter wants to do the work. He doesn't want to be washed. He wants to, he wants to prove himself. It's his pride. He doesn't want to work. He doesn't want Jesus to work for him. He wants to work for Jesus. And Jesus says, it doesn't work that way, Peter. The only way it works is if you stop trying to work for me and you let me work for you. And so the gospel is just this. Jesus does everything and we do nothing. We have nothing to contribute. And that's exactly what the shepherds had going for them, <laughs> right? I mean, they had no illusions about their own greatness. They knew right where they stood in the larger society, right at the bottom. They were the nobodies. And yet here they were, special guests at the birth of the king of the universe. And I, I just think they must have been saying to themselves, you know, can you imagine, I mean, what, are we, what are we doing here? I mean, can, you believe, can you believe this? <laughs> and Luke tells us that they left the stable. And they went away glorifying and praising God because the good news 
and their inclusion in it had overwhelmed them. And I wonder, I wonder how many of us sat around yesterday while the carnage of unwrapped presents on the floor and just said, can you believe this? I mean, this, this is the most amazing. I mean, can you, I'm just blown away by God's generosity and kindness. I mean, were you overwhelmed or were you just kind of, eh? Because shepherds, those who have no place, when they get a place, it's the greatest thing ever. And that's where the joy comes from. But then thirdly, I want to just, so there's a new identity. I mean, in other words, the gospel would, would, would form us into a community of people who are willing and ready to call ourselves sinners, to be, I, sign me up with the nobodies, because it's the nobodies that get in. But then there's also a mission, and I just want to finish with this. Now, the third group in the audience at the birth of Jesus is the wise men, or the magi. And we're not sure who these men were. Probably, uh, we're told they're from the east, probably Persia. They're obviously very rich. We know this from the gifts they bring, and they were very well educated. We know this from their occupation. They, they looked at the stars. They were, they were uh, ast- I always get this wrong, probably astrology, some astronomy mixed in there, all those kinds of things. They watched the stars, and so they were men of science. And so the tradition is to refer to them as kings. So we three kings of Orient, right? So they were kings. They were royal. So Matthew's gospel tells us they've come all the way to Israel, these kings have, to worship the one who was born king of the Jews. Now, what's fascinating is if you were to go to Matthew chapter 2, you would see that in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew sees the visit of these magi, as the, of these wise men, and as the fulfillment of a prophecy about Messiah in Micah chapter 5. And in Micah chapter 5, we're told that the, that the king who would come, who would be Messiah of his people, would be king of kings, that he would be eternal, and that his greatness, Micah says, would be known to the ends of the earth. And this thought is echoed in other passages that talk about the kings of the nations of the earth coming and bowing before the Messiah and bringing him tribute gifts as a sign of his greatness. So, for example, Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11. Just listen to these verses. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. This is talking about the king of Israel, the Messiah. And so Tarshish is like, Tarshish was the, was the biblical way of saying the farthest place you can think of. The coastlands, way out there. I mean, as far away from where we are as you can possibly imagine in your head. Those kings, from that far away, may they come and may they offer him tribute. In other words, a tribute would be, I'm giving you a gift to show your greatness over me. So I'm, I'm, I'm bowing myself, prostrating myself before you. May the kings of Seba and Sheba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. And for Matthew, the Magi bowing down before the baby Jesus in Bethlehem or, you know, wherever he was by the time they got there is the fulfillment of this prophecy and others that the tiny baby in the manger was destined to be the king of the whole world. That all kings would bow down to him. That all nations would serve him. And that's the significance of their presence at his birth. Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 11 to get back to these passages we're looking at this morning. Verse 9, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And again in verse 10, and he, this king, this righteous branch from Jesse, he shall be a signal for all the peoples, and of him shall all the nations inquire. Now can I sum this up? God's goal, if I could sum it up for you and just kind of wrap things up this morning, God's goal in sending Jesus to a manger in Bethlehem as militant as it sounds His goal is global domination. 
He's come to take over the world. And what God began in Bethlehem at Christmas, he will not stop doing until every tribe and tongue and nation in the world has heard the good news and bowed their knees to King Jesus. That's what the Bible says. When God sent Jesus into the world, it was like dropping a huge stone in a river and there's a ripple effect that is sweeping across every nation and people of the earth until it reaches the very ends of the earth, the farthest, most remote corners of the earth. And that means that Christmas leaves us with a mission that we have no choice. We have no choice. That by definition, our work as his followers has to go beyond these six acres of ground, even beyond the city we live in. That if we're going to be faithful, we have to be intentionally and strategically involved in taking the news of Jesus to the nations of the earth. Every single one of us in this room. The call from your Lord and Savior is to go make disciples of your neighbors across the street. Yes, of course. But not just that. Go and make disciples of all nations. To every nation until we come to the day where we gather around his throne at the great end of time. And there are representatives from every tribe and tongue and nation of people who are in their own language singing praises to the Lamb who is worthy because he was slain before the foundation of the world. So there's a mission, you see? There's a mission. And I think John Piper's categories are really helpful. John Piper says there's three kinds of people in the church. Uh, You can be, number one, a radical goer. In other words, you can set your life for the purpose of going from this place to where people do not know, the the two billion people, most of them in the 1040 window, where they'll kill you if you go to talk about Jesus, but we need to go there anyway. And to tell people the good news of the baby born in Bethlehem, that there are radical goers, that you can, there, there are three kinds of people. The first is the kind of people, radical goers, who set their life to either on a short term or a long term career, whatever it might be, to get to people who've not heard and to go to the nations of the earth that do not yet know. And then there are the radical senders. The second kind of person is radical senders. And those are people who work really hard and make as much money as they can for the purpose of investing in those who are the radical sender, radical goers. So you can be a radical goer. And you can be a radical sender, and then the only other option is the third option, and that is you can be disobedient. And so, see, we've got it wrong. I mean, we've got it all wrong. There's a mission. I mean, so many people walk into the church, you know, and we think, oh, man, here I am. Uh, I'm in the church, and hallelujah, hallelujah, you know. And, I, and, and now here I am, and, and now it's the church's job to, to meet my needs and take care of me. No, you're the church, and it's your job to take care and to love the world. Right? I mean, there's a mission. We've got something to do. We've got work. We've got to get done. I mean, the Christmas leaves us with a whole host, 80,000 of the 100,000 people in the city of Winter Haven who, who don't go to church anywhere. 2.2 billion people in the world who, who don't know the name of Jesus and don't have a church that they can walk down the street and go to. There's work that we've got to get done, and Christmas leaves us pointing us towards the mission as we, as we see that these kings from the east come and bow their knee to King Jesus. It's a foretaste of what God is doing, of what his heart. God loves a worldwide reputation. And that's what Christmas is for. See, that's the scope. I mean, there's this huge, you see, it's so much bigger than we've ever dreamed that it could possibly be. And it means we have to be a distinctive kind of people And it means we've got to really live out the mission as we follow Jesus and take up our own cross. uh, As we uh, follow him who took up his cross to save us. And so let's pray because we need to pray. 
and ask him to help us as we consider what it means for us to live faithfully uh, on this side of Christmas. So let's do that. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I love the song that, that, uh, that says, uh, it was not a silent night. Andrew Peterson wrote, it was not a silent night, there was blood on the ground. Uh, you're breaking into the world. We have this picture of the, that there was this soft glow. And, and that one, one, one song we even seen says you didn't cry. You know, that you were, and I just can't even fathom that. No, there, there was crying. There was the Mary crying out. There was, it was bloody and um, hard and scary because you're coming into the world signaled the culmination of the war between the forces of good and evil that had raged from before the dawn of time. And Revelation pictures a dragon crouching, waiting to snatch the child that would be delivered, that he might carry him away to devour him. And, and the, very, the very host of heaven were there not only to sing, but to guard against the evil one who had come, that you have come and broken into the world to undo evil. You are the rightful king who's landed in disguise, as C.S. Lewis says, and who calls us all to join in a campaign of sabotage, that we were born into a world at war, and we have a mission. And so today, even as we come off of the high of iPods and TVs and uh, all the things that we got yesterday, would you remind us that those things are useful and helpful to the degree um, that they cause us to delight in you more and that they ready us for the mission you've called us to? And would you put in our hearts a desire to see? Would we be a people that will not rest by your grace and by your spirit until every nation on the earth knows you and bows their knee to you? Lord Jesus, we pray as you've taught us to pray. May your kingdom come to bring all things and make them new. And may your will be done. And may you be glorified in us, we pray. Amen. And so uh, the promise as you go, and and again, as you face the hardship and the suffering and the pain and and just the sadness of a world still ravaged by sin, the promise and the courage you can take is that as you go, because of the work of Christ, because Christ came, uh, you can now uh, rest and live your life under the Father's blessing and under his smile. And that's the promise of the benediction. So receive the benediction then uh, with all that it means to you the day after uh, the day we celebrate his coming. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.